for God's blessing on our meeting tonight. Our God and Father, we bow to thank Thee for Thy goodness to us and for Thy care over us. We thank Thee for the opportunity of meeting together in this way. 
and for the laws of our nation which enable us to do so in freedom and without fear. We bow together to thank thee. We pray for the leaders of our land that they might learn to seek thy face in decisions that they have to take and that they may recognize the authority of the divine as they seek to govern the land in which we live. But for the conditions in which we live at present, we bow together to give thee our thanks. Truly the lines are fallen to us in pleasant places. And so we bow to thank thee. Thank thee for the opportunity to come together to hear thy word. And thank thee for my servant Dan who is with us tonight. Pray that thou wilt bless him and give him the necessary help as he seeks to bring thy word to us in order that we might be encouraged and challenged as we seek to continue a life for thee here. We thank thee too that we have our brother John and sister Onte and the family with us. We thank thee for the work that they accomplish and do in Botswana. And we pray that thou wilt continue to bless them and help them as they spend the next few weeks here in the UK before returning back to Botswana. We think of many of thy people in that land and pray for them tonight that they might know thy continued blessing upon them. And so we bow to thank thee. We think of so many of our own people who are struggling at present and we pray that thou wilt abundantly bless them. Thou knowest the need and thou knowest every circumstance. We thank thee that even before we ask, thou dost know. And we thank thee that uh, all thy people are in thy hand. And we simply commit those that need thy help to thee in a particular way, that they might be helped and encouraged this evening. We thank thee for thy love to us. We thank thee for the grace that we've been singing about and the love that we have rehearsed in thy presence. We thank thee that once in Christ, in Christ forever, and we thank thee for the love that stays between us and for the love of Christ in which we dwell. And we pray, our God and Father, that thou wilt help us just to stay close to thyself in order that we might be encouraged and help to live our lives for him. So we do commend ourselves to thee and ask for thy blessing upon thy servant who comes to speak to us now. And we ask it and give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I'll ask our brother Dan. Now it's good to be back with you once again in Holborn and thank you for the warm welcome. Now I would like to <coughs> turn your attention this evening to Romans in chapter 8, <coughs> Romans in chapter 8 and uh, reading from verse number 18, Romans chapter 8 verse 18. Perhaps we should maybe read Verse 17, just to get the connection, verse 17 ends <clears throat> that great section on the great truth of sanctification or deliverance from sin's power. And in verse uh, 17, <clears throat> Paul says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So he ends that great section uh, with the idea of suffering 
and also the idea of glory. And so he's going to pick up in verse 18, which uh, commences the second section of the chapter. And he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the, creation, the creature, or creation, was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body for we are saved by hope but hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth why doth he yet hope for but if we hope for that we see not then do we with patience wait for it and i'm sure even the reading of God's word tonight will have been an encouragement and a blessing to us. You know, someone has likened the Roman epistle as to a gold ring with an inset diamond. And uh, I think that when you come to Roman chapter 8, we've arrived at the diamond. It's a wonderful chapter. Uh, and uh, the first section, the first 17 verses, Paul is concluding his great teaching in relation to the matter of the believer's sanctification or our deliverance from sin's dominion. He commences a way back in chapter 5 and verse 12, where he takes up the matter of sin, as by one man sin entered into the world. And so he kind of reaches the climax of his teaching when we come to chapter 8, and there we discover that there's a new principle at work in our lives. The law of the spirit of life in Christ that makes us free from the law of sin and of death. But when we come to verse 18, the apostle now is turning primarily his attention to the thought, not only of glory, future glory, but also the thought of comfort, as we make our way as pilgrims through this world and destined eventually to be glorified with Christ, although God already sees us as being glorified, but in reality we will not be glorified uh, until the Lord Jesus comes, and that could be tonight, into the air to rapture the church, to be forever with himself. But as we tread the pilgrim pathway, we're called upon to suffer. 
That's how Paul ends this section dealing with sanctification. It's the thought of suffering, but also of being glorified together with him. And of course, that's the principle that runs right throughout the word of God, right from Genesis, right throughout the word of God, is the principle that suffering precedes glory. And that was the whole message of the prophets, the spirit of Christ that testified or spoke through the prophets. He testified beforehand concerning the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So that suffering is something that's our common lot. We suffer with him. We're living in bodies of humiliation, bodies that are so prone to illness and disease and eventually death itself. We groan, says Paul, we also groan, along with a groaning creation, as we're going to see. And so as Paul enters into this great subject of future glory, he's going to bring before us comforting truths that are going to help us, that are going to sustain us as we suffer in this present world. And the first great truth that he brings before us, I want to consider with you this evening, is the thought of hope. Hope. First of all, the hope of creation. From verse 19 to 22, and then from verse 23 to 25, it's the hope of the church, the hope of creation, and then the hope of the church. And of course, following on from that, we have the comforting truth of the great intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit in relation to our prayer life. And then he goes on to speak about divine providence and divine purpose. And leading on to the wonderful fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So that this section is full of truth that's designed to comfort and encourage the people of God as we pass through this waste howling wilderness of a world and are called upon to suffer in so many different ways. But before he touches on the wonderful truth of hope, he brings before us this tremendous statement in verse 18, following on from verse 17, the thought of suffering and of future glory. He says, for, for I reckon, and the idea of this word reckon is a, a considered judgment. It's not something that Paul's arrived at overnight. It's something that he has weighed up in the course of his life and service for Christ. And he was a man who knew what it was to suffer in a way that you and I know little of. And so when he speaks about I reckon, it's not just a kind of passing opinion. It's the idea of a, a well-thought and weighed-out uh, conclusion resulting in absolute assurance. I reckon. What does he reckon? He says, well, you know, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, and of course, this present time covers the whole course of our lives, from the moment we trust Christ until the rapture, or we pass through the article of death. He says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared 
with the glory that shall be revealed in us, or better, to us, to us word, to us word. Uh, this word, <clears throat> this word worthy, are not worthy, it's, it's the idea of the, the pulling down of a scale. You know, when I was a boy, before the advent of supermarkets and what have you, uh, when my mother used to go shopping, you know, you joined the queue at the grocer shop. Uh, and when your turn came and you asked for your pound of butter, it wasn't already made up in a convenient package. No, the, the grocer, he would, he would cut you your, your pound of butter. And he would have a brass scale, a brass weight rather, on one side of the scale, and he would put the butter on that side. And if, it, if, it, if the scale was weighing this way, he put a little bit extra butter on, you know, until it, until it balanced up, you see. And then if he was a good man, he would give you extra butter. See, that's the difference between a righteous man and a good man. A righteous man will give you exactly the exact weight, but a good man, he'll throw in a little bit extra. That's what Paul means when he says, scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. And so you see, there is a difference between a righteous man and a good man. And so you, you, you would watch until the scales balanced up and then you got your, your pound of butter, you see. So what Paul's thinking about this, he's, he's thinking about all the sufferings on one side of the scale, one side of the scale. And, and on the other side, he puts the coming glory. And you see that the, the coming glory, it just, it just outweighs it. It's not worthy, he says. It's not worthy to be compared even. This coming glory, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. There's a parallel thought too in Second Corinthians. Remember that remarkable statement of the apostle where he says that the, the, this, the, the, um, with regards to... <clears throat> The thoughts of the verses has gone out of my mind. Uh, we'll read it rather than forget it. I didn't sleep too well coming down in the ferry. 14 hours of stormy weather. We just arrived yesterday in Aberdeen. And uh, so Paul, Paul says that, uh, uh, yeah, that's in verse 17. Our light affliction, he says. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. Similar thought to what he's saying here in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8. And so having, having, having said that, um, when, when he's saying about being revealed to us, it's not that we are sort of bystanders looking on. We're going, to, we're going to be part of this future glory, but we're going to witness the glory in relation to the coming millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And having introduced the thought of future glory that we're going to observe, he then speaks about the hope of creation. And he says, for the earnest expectation of the creature, or better, of creation. 
And the idea of this word earnest expectation is the idea of the stretching of the head. You know, if you're, you're anxious to see, perhaps looking out the window, looking at something, or trying to look over the head of the crowd to see someone. It's the idea of the stretching forth of the head. So that the, the, the creation, it's, it's, it's marked by this earnest expectation. And what is it waiting for? What is creation waiting for this evening? This creation that since the fall of Adam and placed by God into this state of vanity, what is creation waiting for this evening? You know, creation has a hope. Every aspect of creation, whether it's the animal kingdom, the birds, the fish, the mammals, every, every aspect, even inanimate objects. We, we read in some of the Psalms about the, the, the trees clapping their hands and the mountains singing and rejoicing. And, and creation tonight, you know, you have to laugh at men are all worked up about climate change and, and all these things, and they're all worried about creation. Listen, creation has got hope, whereas the world has got no hope. We live in a hopeless world. But creation has a hope, and this hope is going to be realized. So what is creation waiting for tonight? It's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That is the revelation of the sons of God. Now, when are the sons of God going to be revealed? The sons of God are going to be revealed when the Lord Jesus is manifested to this world in power and in glory when he returns to set up his kingdom. And every eye shall see him when he comes to be glorified in his saints and to be admired, not by, but in all them that believe. That is the glorified church. And of course, the sons of God is the glorified church. So the creation tonight is waiting for this wonderful moment when the sons of God are going to be revealed. That is you and I. For that will mark the moment of creation's Deliverance, delivered from the bondage of corruption. You see, the fall of Adam in the beginning, who was the federal head over creation, it, it, it resulted in this. Creation was made subject to vanity by his will. Whose will? God's will. God brought creation into a state of vanity. Now, what do we mean by vanity? It, it, as Mr. Vine says, it's what is void of results, failing to achieve the full design of its being. Our late brother Albert Leckie says, devoid of meaning, purpose, incentive. So that tonight creation, since the fall of man, hasn't really fulfilled what God originally designed it to fulfill. So that the ground isn't yielding 
what it could and should have yielded if Adam hadn't sinned. And you've got all these geological disturbances, earthquakes, volcanoes. You see, it's a, it's a suffering, groaning creation. So there's the first effect, first effect of the fall of Adam was creation was made subject to vanity. That's verse 20. But not only that, it was brought into a state of bondage. The bondage of corruption. That is verse 21. And then verse 22, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth. There are the three effects of the fall of man on creation. It's subject to vanity. It's in the bondage of corruption. It's a groaning and travailing creation. I'm glad that Paul adds travailing. You see, before a child is born, the mother has to experience travail. The pangs of birth bearing. And tonight creation is groaning and travailing. But there's coming a wonderful moment of deliverance when there's going to be issued in a new condition as far as creation is concerned. And when God subjected creation, it says he had subjected the same in hope or on hope. So Paul gives us a clear definition of what hope is. In verse number 24, it says, but we are saved by or to hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. So hope is anticipating what as of yet has not been seen. With regards to promise, faith lays hold upon the promise. Hope lays hold upon what is promised. So that the moment that the sons of God are revealed, creation is going to be delivered from all that we have just considered, these three effects, results of Adam's sin, the fall of man. Creation's going to be delivered from that. Indeed, it's going to rejoice, says Paul. It's going to rejoice in the liberty of the glory of the children of God. Delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty is the idea, the glorious liberty, the good authorized version, but the, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is us. In our coming day, we are bringing glory the creation and a liberty associated, this is, that's what's going to characterize the glory, it's liberty. And creation's going to enter in to this wonderful liberty of the glory of the children of God. Now then, this truth runs right throughout the Old Testament scriptures. It's anticipated in the prophets, it's anticipated in the Psalms, whereas the truth of the rapture that we'll think about shortly is not seen in the Old Testament. 
That, that, that was one of the great mysteries that has been revealed. What was formerly hidden, you get nice pictures of it, don't you, in the Old Testament, the rapture, Enoch being snatched away, translated before the, the judgment came. Yeah. But the, 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 neither the church nor the hope of the church is taught in the Old Testament. That's a New Testament revelation that Paul primarily received from God. But the truth of the second coming, that is the second advent of the Lord Jesus to earth, is a truth that runs right throughout the Old Testament. And so if we keep that in mind, we're not going to get confused between the second advent of the Lord Jesus and the rapture, the coming of the Lord Jesus for the church, and then his coming a few years later with the church as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, when you come to Isaiah, for example, as I say, there are many passages in the Old Testament that deal with the truth of the coming kingdom, the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus. But when you come to Isaiah chapter 11 and verses 6 to 9, we'll just take time to read it. It says there, the wolf, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den, that is the adder's den, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mount, and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. You see, Dan, is that literal? Is that going to happen? It is indeed. And what's going to issue in this tremendous transformation where carnivorous, ferocious animals are going to be eaten hay? along with the ox, the lion. He'll lose his appetite for eating the ox, but he'll be eating with the ox. Isn't that remarkable? And a wolf and a lamb dwelling together. And the calves, the little calves, and the bears, little ones, playing together. And a little child leading them. His pets are lions and bears, and he's leading them. You see, is that really going to happen, Dan? Is it, is it really literal? Oh, yes, absolutely. What a transformation, the advent of Christ and the revelation of the sons of God is going to bring in this tremendous transformation. And we'll be harvesting, says one of the prophets, they'll be gathering handfuls of corn on the tops of the mountains. And is it the... the, 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 the the reaper will overtake the plowman. The earth will be yielding so abundantly. Men are scratching their heads tonight, wondering how we're going to feed this growing population. They tell us there's now 8 billion people on the face of the planet. 
And you know, if it continues, if it continues, how are we going to feed them? Excuse me. There'll be no food shortages in the millennium. The world will know universal prosperity and peace when the Lord Jesus reigns. What a wonderful hope creation has tonight. Creation has this hope. This creation that men are worrying about, wondering, oh, what's going to happen? Creation, it has this wonderful prospect and it's earnestly stretching forth its head, looking, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, the coming of the Lord Jesus with the church. But then very quickly, for time is moving on, just to think a little about this second aspect of hope, that is the, the hope, the hope of the hope of the church, the hope of the church. Says the apostle there in verse number 23, he says, and not only they, that is creation, but ourselves also, which have the first fruit in the singular of the spirit, even we, ourselves grown within ourselves so he's now turning his attention to the saints in particular to the church saints and reminding us of the fact that we also groan and then you come later on down the chapter in relation to the ministry of the spirit the intercessory ministry and he's groaning groaning with interceding with groanings which cannot be uttered and so tonight the the church we're groaning and yet we have the first fruit of the spirit uh, there are different views as to what paul means here now he's not thinking about the earnest of the spirit the earnest of the inheritance the spirit is the earnest of the inheritance it's the, it's the sample and the guarantee of what's coming, our inheritance, the indwelling spirit. He's described in Ephesians 1 as the earnest of our inheritance. But here it's the first fruit of the spirit. We have the first fruit. Now the first fruit was always the, the sample and the guarantee of what was to come, the coming harvest. So that the church, in this present age, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So we have the first fruit of the Spirit. But you know, there's coming a day, Joel tells us in chapter 2 of his prophecy, when God will pour his Spirit upon all flesh. And those who are saved in tribulation days, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out upon the nation of Israel as the believing element of the nation, as well as that great multitude in Revelation 7 from amongst the nations that no man can number. That have come out of great tribulation and washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, we've got the sample of it. The first fruit of the Spirit, the brethren. There's greater things coming. It's remarkable. 
the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out in that coming day. See, Joel's prophecy, and I know Peter quoted from Joel in chapter 2 when he's explaining what's happened. When the Holy Spirit descended in chapter 2 of Acts, at the birth of the church, and, and, and Peter quotes from that. But it's only been partially fulfilled, like so many other prophecies are partially fulfilled, but they have, they have yet to be fulfilled in their entirety. And so we that have the first fruit of the Spirit, we're groaning and we're waiting. What, what, what are we anticipating? Waiting for the adoption. To wit, the redemption of our body. What does Paul mean? We are waiting for the adoption. Now this word adoption is to do with sonship. And remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. How that we have been predestinated. The idea is marked out beforehand for sonship. Now, God wasn't obliged to give us a position of sons. It was his own sovereign will, his own sovereign choice, that he decreed that all that would believe in the Lord Jesus would receive the position of sons. What a wonderful thing to be numbered amongst the sons of God. A, a position of dignity, a position of responsibility, a position of privilege to be numbered amongst the sons of God. So what does he mean when he says we are waiting for the sonship? Well, you said, Dan, you've already told us in Ephesians 1 that we're already sons of God. That is, we have the position of sons of God. That is right. But my sonship will never be fulfilled entirely until this body of mine is changed. And so we are waiting for the adoption. And Paul goes on to explain that to wit, the redemption of the body, our body. You see, our souls and our spirits have been redeemed. The moment you put your trust in Christ, you were redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. That is fixed and that is eternal. But this body of mine, this mortal body, which someday is going to die, and saints' bodies that are corrupting in the grave tonight, we're waiting for the redemption of the body. The price has been paid. You know, Israel was redeemed in Exodus 12. They were redeemed by blood, the blood of the Lamb. But when we come to the crossing of the Red Sea, they were redeemed by power. And when the Lord Jesus comes into the air, for this is what Paul's thinking about, this is the moment of our final complete redemption, when we'll be redeemed body, soul, and spirit. When the bodies of the saints that are in the state of corruption will put on incorruptibility. And we who are mortal will put on immortality. That's what Paul's dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
This mortal must put on immortality, and this corruptible must put on incorruption. And when this mortal has put on immortality, and this corruptible has put on incorruption, then shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Brethren, our redemption is not yet complete. Our sonship, although legally it is complete, legally we are sons of God. But our sonship will not be completely realized until these bodies of ours are going to be changed. And Paul, he goes on to describe just how we're going to look in that coming day. Further on, he says there that wonderful section where he speaks about how we'll be conformed into the image of his son. This is something again that God has predestined, wasn't obliged, but he, was, he predestinated us to this wonderful glorious change. He says we're going to be conformed unto the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Brethren, we're waiting tonight for the redemption of our bodies. And that will happen the moment the Lord Jesus comes into the air, and that could be now as I'm speaking to you. There are no prophecies to be fulfilled before the Lord Jesus comes for the church. There are many prophecies to be fulfilled before he comes with the church. Many prophecies. But there are no prophecies. Brethren, we don't live in a prophetic age at the moment. And this is a great mistake that some good brethren have made in the past, where they try to think that present events is fulfilling prophecy. One outstanding teacher in the last war amongst us said that Russia would never enter the Second World War. He was basing it, as he thought, in prophecy, but Russia did enter the Second World War. So it's a, a, a don't go in for trying to. We know that there's a shadow coming across the earth, and God is speaking, but we're not living in a prophetic period. And the moment the Lord Jesus comes for the church into the air, as I've said, with that commanding shout, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And what a comfort, especially for those who in recent days have lost loved ones. What a comfort to know that they're sleeping through Jesus. And there's coming a moment when the dead in Christ will rise first. And we which are alive and remain, gathered here in Holborn tonight, if the Lord was to come now, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And you know, at that moment of change, this body of mine, not only my body, but my whole being, is going to be conformed unto the image of God's beloved Son, body, soul, and spirit, conformed unto his image. 
Mr. Darby captured that so beautifully, didn't he, in that lovely hymn. And is it so? We shall be like his son. Is this the grace which he for us has won? Father of glory, thought beyond all thought, in glory, into his blessed likeness brought. That wonderful. Someday we're going to be like him. And although hope doesn't save us, it says we are saved by hope. Well, it really means we are saved in hope. We are saved unto hope. That is the moment the Lord saved me, there was begotten within me a hope. You know, when the Lord saved me, I didn't know anything about the rapture. I wasn't privileged to be brought up in a Christian home or to move in Christian circles. As a young man of 20, when the Lord saved me, I had a hope. My hope was just the hope of going to heaven someday. The hope of glory. It was very limited, my understanding. But although we're not saved by hope, there is a sense in which we are delivered. It's the helmet of salvation. So in that sense, we're being preserved by hope. Hope doesn't save us from our sins, but we're being preserved by hope. And, and furthermore, it has a sanctifying effect in us, or should. What John says, remember, he that hath this hope in him, that is on him, on the Lord Jesus, purifies himself, even as he is pure. So although hope doesn't save us in the sense that we talk about being saved, yet it does have a sanctifying, or should have, a sanctifying and a preserving effect upon all of our lives. The hope of creation. I'm looking forward to that. And I come with the Lord Jesus. And we'll see it all in that coming day. And meanwhile, we're waiting for the realization of the hope of the church at any moment. The Lord Jesus could descend out of heaven with that commanding shout. And what a moment when we're transformed into his likeness, that he might have that place of preeminence and priority amongst the sons of God. I trust that everyone in the meeting tonight has this hope. If there's anyone here in the meeting and you're not depending, trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then at the moment you have no hope. What an awful thing to die without hope or even to live without hope. So, no better time than now, no better place than here, to put your trust in the Lord Jesus. And the moment you do so, this hope will become yours.
Thank you for listening. Uh, thanks to Brother Dan for that uh, encouraging and Christ-exalting ministry. It's been uh, an encouragement to us tonight, Dan, and thank you for bringing that word to us. We're going to sing just a few verses of 678. The last time John and Auntie Bandy were in this hall, uh, they were a picture on the wall behind me, uh, like a movie. Uh, on Zoom from Botswana and we had a, an encouraging time that evening I remember but it's great to have them here in the flesh tonight, a delight to us um, I'm looking at the three children too it would have been 11 years ago that we were in Botswana so you can work out your age, what you were then much younger than you are today and it's great to see them growing into a strong Christian young men and young women but we're delighted to have John and Auntie with us tonight. And John's going to give us, once we've sung this hymn, just a little kind of refresher on the work in Botswana and uh, how they're getting on and where they're about. So we'll sing just a few verses of 678. Who can cheer the heart like Jesus by his presence all divine, true and tender, pure and precious. Oh, how blessed to call him mine. What a wonderful redemption. Never can a mortal know how my sin, no red like crimson, can be whiter than the snow. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000.